This passage is the prophecy that concerns the, the arrival of the Magi, the wise men, who came to visit the Christ child when he was somewhere under or around two years of age. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy in the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And then Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Voices heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Let us pray. Dear Father, we give you thanks for the precious value of your word. And we understand that your word is precious because of the life of Christ. That indeed, because of his life, Because of the evidence that you have given to us through his life and through so many other witnesses throughout scripture, we know that your word is not fiction, not a novel to be read and discarded, but instead a mine with deep treasures and deep riches, riches beyond compare. And we ask that we would mine the depths of your word. We would study your word with diligence. We pray that you would forgive us for our lack of devotion to you through your word. Help us to be renewed in our devotion to you as exemplified through our study of your word. I pray that my words, Lord, would be faithful and in keeping with your word because it alone is holy and true, having the power through the inward working of your Holy Spirit to transform human lives. And we pray that we would humble ourselves before you as you teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have been watching the news, you're aware that this past week has seen references to Christ and his parents, Mary, and his earthly father, Joseph, in which they are referred to as the ancient equivalent of today's homeless family. Well, I think that this particular reference is a shameless effort to command your Christ for political purpose and advantage. 
It is true that the truths and the facts about Christmas are far from the gilt-edged tinsel picture which so often is used to portray Christmas, which oftentimes we are hard put to get away from, to come to a, a true understanding of what this day is because of what it was through the birth of Christ. This past Wednesday at the Grand Court, we were privileged to have a worship service with the people there and to hear Jerry Shibley preach a short message in which he spoke of the necessity of our looking into the manger and seeing that the reality of Christmas is far different from what we imagine. And so that started my mind to, to, to thinking and seeking to comprehend what it would be like to look into that manger. And as we look into that manger, I see a vision of rough wood, or perhaps even of paving stones laid together, with hay in the bottom of the manger and a child, fragile, lying on top of the hay, wrapped carefully, tightly, and warmly in cloths while his parents hovered nearby, occupied in the wonder of a newborn child. Hands so small, yet perfect, human hands. But having these parents, none of the occupations of home, none of the chores of a house because they are far from home. Joseph cannot go into his shop to plane boards and hew out the pieces of a chair. Mary cannot busy herself over the fire, putting things together, <clears throat> neatening, making tidy in her bedroom, for they are far from home. And so we see in Mary and Joseph a couple more to be pitied than to be honored or envied. Understand, I think this is the way we observe it. <coughs> we are to look at the reality <coughs> of that Christmas when Christ was born. We see an awkward situation, unpleasant to all, far from comfortable, far from home, far from the ideal situation and circumstances that any would be pleased to find themselves in. We find Joseph and Mary caught in limbo between a temporary resting place away from home and home itself. The setting one in which a child is definitely not at home. This is an unusual setting, an extraordinary setting, an uncomfortable one. The companions, whatever animals might be there, providing a far from sanitary welcome to a scene of the delivery of a woman through the birth of a child. The guests, a dirty and rough lot. Shepherds from the fields come to pay a visit in their work clothes. No showers, no clean clothes, no tidying up. Smelling of sweat and animals. Look into that manger with me and see a child and family to be pitied as they have gotten caught in the merciless cogs of the Roman governmental machine. Like the one who is considering the game of musical chairs a pleasant game until the music stops and he finds that everybody else is seated and he has no seat himself. This family is without comfort and helpless here in this cold, unwelcoming environment. <clears throat> but this view, as we look into the manger and look back in time, shows us how easily you and I are fooled by our evaluations of what we see. 
Often times we think that an eyewitness account is all that is necessary to know what is truly happening. When in reality, I think the situation that I have just described, the reality I'm sure varying somewhat in one degree or another from what I have sought to describe, we would think from seeing that situation that we could describe it and our description would be accurate. And yet, in believing that as witnesses, we know what is happening, we are neglecting the most important aspect of this world, indeed of our very lives, and that is that there is a spiritual realm that we do not see. For we are easily fooled by our evaluations, even when we are eyewitnesses, and our emotions easily lead us astray. For the reality of this situation is far from being accurately described in pitiable terms. For here, despite the cold, the squalor, the inappropriate nature of this setting, it is not a helpless child lying in that feeding trough, not a homeless family dwelling in that barn. The Lord of the universe waits there calmly and patiently, going through the process of birth and growth. He, the creator, awaits those who have been told to visit him and welcome him into this world, a tiny infant. And he knows they will come. <clears throat> and though his parents would wish a better introduction into the world for him and have not been able to make the proper arrangements as a result of the crowd in Bethlehem and their slow travels there <clears throat> because of Mary's pregnancy and their poverty, This child in the manger is not helpless and is not friendless, resting there because there is no other place to be had. For he has moved the world in order to be born in this town at this time. And it is no surprise to him that the only place available for his birth is a stable. The only place for his resting place, not a cradle, but instead a manger. It is the supremely chosen, God-ordained palace for this king to come forth into the world and the shepherds, not the best that could be obtained to welcome his birth, not the best that could be done under the circumstances, but instead those, the invited guests, given the privilege of angels, uh, angel declaration. And a gilded-edged card delivered to them, saying, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The place, the location, the time, and the explicit statement in that invitation, visit him. (laughs) Over the past few weeks, as we have experienced the illness of Joyce and Gus, These have been a reminder, as well as other things in our lives and in our families. The Christmas seems to see more than its fair share of illness, and among many families, death and other sorrows. My oldest brother died on December 28th in 1963. Many others have experienced the same sorrows at this time of year. Is there more than its fair share of sorrows for Christmas to bear? I think that it's quite possible 
The nature of this wonder, the birth of Christ, reminds us of why it might be the case that Christmas has more than its fair share of sorrows. For with this event, the coming of Christ, his advent upon this earth, is ushered in the presence of the one who does battle with all the forces of hell, battling with the power of creation and redemption to destroy the power of sin, death, and the devil over the evil one's own special dominion, this earth, and over those who have previously been held captive slaves under his spell, mankind. Not only was the event itself fraught with that combination of glory and evil, which this cataclysmic opening event foretold, but the reverberations of this event continue throughout the years, centuries and the millennia, reminding the world of the humble beginnings which exploded into the holiness and perfection of the life of Christ. Because every step, as we read about his steps throughout the pages of the Gospels, was plagued and dogged by wickedness, Seek him to cause him to make all it took one small false step at any point in his life, whether as a young child, whether as a grown man. And thus, by seeking to dog his steps and to cause him to make a false step, to forfeit his power to redeem mankind and lose his opportunity to offer himself the one and only sinless sacrifice. Is it any wonder, then, that Christmas is accompanied with the sorrows of death and illness? For these are grim reminders that Adam's sin still has the power for a time, and that Satan still drives us to heed our selfish desires and live for ourselves. Yet along with the weeping and mourning of loneliness loss and dashed hopes, comes the reminder that is declared by the birth of that child in that barn, laid in that manger, that these sorrows are for those who trust that out of this seed that has fallen to the ground and died, a glorious plant bearing fruit will come forth. For those who trust in Christ, these sorrows are only for a time. Because the victory has been won. Christ has been declared the one whose name is above all names. He sits victorious at the side of his Father in heaven, watching and ruling over the lives of men because he is biding his time until he ends this veil of tears. All because he began the work by being born an infant in a barn. But the lowly circumstances of his birth the poverty of his working-class family are not the only stark reminders of the effects of sin's dominion over this world, our hearts, and the hearts of all mankind. Events were soon to unfold, those that I have read of in prophecy, Jeremiah 31, and in reality as the account is given to us in Matthew chapter 2, revealing the enemy's continued and vicious efforts to stop this infant from growing. Whether through his murder whether through those temptations that he would sin and thus make his life irrelevant. When the wise men saw the witness of the Lord to the birth of Christ, the star in the east, and they made their way to Jerusalem. Soon thereafter, by following prophecy and the mute testimony of the star, they too paid their homage and honor to the child, even as the shepherds had. But their declaration of his birth notified the wicked 
God's plan for redeeming mankind was bearing fruit, and the time to seek its halt was at hand. So Herod, used by Satan, sought through his conniving trickery to learn of this perceived threat to his rule. Thereby revealing that he was a special instrument of Satan. And while an infant born in his adulthood, in Herod's adulthood, could scarcely bring a threat to the kingdom of Herod, a child born and living to die sacrificially could threaten Herod's master at any time. Satan could be threatened at any time by this infant. And so Herod acted for his master, Satan. He descended upon Bethlehem with all his ruthless power. He stripped this town of its youth, its delight, its future, by ripping the infant and toddler sons of the townspeople from their homes and killing them, just to rid the world of that one child who, while under two years of age, was nonetheless the greatest threat the world had and would ever know. And so I read again the prophecy as it was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. I've often thought of this passage and of those children who died. In many senses, certainly they died as a result of the sin of Adam because through that one sin, Adam's sin, uh, we have all inherited sin and are sinners. Even at that time where we do not commit sins ourselves at the age of these infants. And yet these infants died because of Christ. And I found it interesting to look at the prophecy in Jeremiah. And as I read that prophecy to you this morning, before we're reading of its fulfillment in Matthew chapter 2, I imagine that it struck you as it struck me. The message of that prophecy is not a prophecy of weeping, sorrow, and lamentation, but instead, that kernel of sorrow and great grief is encompassed by stupendous joy and rejoicing. Let me read it again. From Jeremiah chapter 31. Think of that as I read this again. What part does the mourning and the weeping in Ramah have to do with this prophecy, with this passage? How large a share does the weeping and the sorrow, the sadness, the death, play in this prophecy? Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. 
Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we are reminded of this true fact, proven by the birth of Christ, a fact today as it was then, the truth throughout time. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This passage reminds us of the truths that are found in Matthew chapter 2. Through the fulfillment of the prophecy given by the prophet Jeremiah, as we read in chapter 31, the reminder is fresh before us on this day. And it is that well, upon looking into that manger, we see a cold, unhealthy, and unsanitary environment, not the place where you would like to put a child. The glory of this life is that spiritual reality is there, even though we do not see it. And we can grasp it by faith in Christ, this very real, very physical child that was born in that manger. The certainty that these passages put together remind us of is this, that the the children that were killed in Bethlehem were not cast aside, sacrificed, because Christ was sought by his enemy. But instead, even as the prophecy of the weeping and mourning in Ramah is filled by the, surrounded by the prophecy in which God tells his people to put away their mourning, that their mourning will be replaced by joy, and that their children will return to their own land. What this tells us is that despite the difficulties and despite the sorrows, Despite the reality of the circumstances which look depressing and hopeless to us, it is never so. The death of children, the death of loved ones, the serious illness of those we know, the heartbreaking, broken commitments of family members and friends, God works in all of these things that he might be glorified. And the way in which he is glorified is by taking squalor and misery and poverty and loss and loneliness and all of the griefs that have been brought upon us by sin and by transforming them into the glory that is declared and brought to food through the death of Christ, which was in reality a victory of God over sin for all who would trust in him. We do not have to trust simply in that death, that Christ lived a sinless life, and that his death was effective in bringing about the possibility of forgiveness of sins. Because we have before us as well a risen Savior. A physical fact, eyewitness accounts, which declare to us people who have difficulty seeing spiritual reality, in physical terms, that what we see is not what we think it is, because God's power is transforming it into his glory.
This Christmas, throughout the coming year, the difficulties that you face and the sorrows that come your way, do not ever think that because you have seen it, it is so. Because by God's power, those things might cause us to have pity on others, to feel sorry for ourselves, to grieve and mourn while these things are very real results in our lives. And grief and mourning are the reality of this life. If we hope for the future through Christ, we will see that these things have been used by him to bring about our perfection and our growing in glory. Keep this in your minds. Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would cause our faith to increase and cause us to see spiritual reality, to keep the truth that comes through faith in Christ close to us at all times, not to be hoodwinked by the attempt of Satan to cause us to think that things are hopeless and sorrows more than we can bear, but instead to remember that if we can endure these things, while the sorrow is very real and heartbreaking, that we have a hope for eternity. And we pray particularly for our family members who do not know this hope, that you would work in their hearts, that they would trust in you, even as we do. Give us this great cause for glory and rejoicing of seeing the physical evidence of your work, your spiritual work, which is given to us in one of many special ways, but particularly one of the most gracious of all, which is the salvation of human lives. Remind us of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.